Good morning to you all. Uh, chapter 16 deals with what's sometimes called practicing anthropology or development in applied anthropology and it has to do with the kind of work anthropologists do outside of uh, academia and believe me uh, there are plenty of employment uh, opportunities uh, for anthropologists outside of um, uh, the university or college. And so we're going to deal with the ethics of applied anthropology, uh, evaluating the effects of plan change, uh, difficulties in instituting plan change, and also uh, environmental uh, anthropology. Uh, the major areas that kind of encompass this field are business and organizational anthropology. That is uh, the work that anthropologists do um, when they're hired by businesses to examine the, the culture of a particular organization. And then we're going to turn to cultural resource management or CRM, which is essentially a kind of archaeology done uh, to recover uh, valuable uh, artifacts or, and or human remains before the uh, development of major uh, infrastructures such as road and dams and things of that nature. This occurs all over the world. Uh, development anthropology, and this is how anthropologists are typically hired, uh, oftentimes in the third world, uh, to uh, initiate things like um, um, public health campaigns, uh, movement of people uh, when a dam is going to be uh, uh, developed or flood their area. Environmental anthropology, again, uh, dealing with um, sorts of major changes following disasters and how anthropologists assist. Uh, in uh, resettlement uh, and kind of starting people on their way again to their economic livelihoods. Museum anthropology, um, and you see a great example of museum anthropology here on campus uh, at the Nebraska State uh, Museum uh, where there are archaeological materials uh, and cultural materials uh, housed. And then forensic anthropology which has to do with uh, how um, anthropologists uh, work with law enforcement agencies and anthropologists are really important in this area, especially biological anthropologists because, uh, for example, when um, the county sheriff finds some human remains, uh, they typically come to us uh, and our biological anthropologists will try and help them out in terms of uh, identifying the age, uh, the sex, um, the potential ethnic background of the, uh, of the individual. Uh, and it's um, a little bit different than what you see on, uh, on TV, which is uh, uh, fairly outlandish uh, much of the time. Um, so the ethics of applied anthropology, the anthropologist's first responsibility is to ensure that ensure the welfare and dignity of those being studied will be protected. And this includes, as we'll learn a little bit later on, uh, even those who are deceased, uh, for example, the examination of Native American graves are part of this uh, process. Um, research findings should be reported openly and truthfully. Uh, that is, um, uh, when, when an applied anthropologist does his or her work, uh, then uh, it's kind of like put forward uh, so the public can examine it, uh, criticize it, and uh, figure out how it could be used. And um, one of the questions you want to ask is, will the change truly benefit the target population? Uh, for example, when a public health campaign is being developed, um, uh, is it structured in a proper way? So, for example, everybody will get uh, vaccinations and uh, what are their priorities in terms of um, the needs they may have 
uh, in uh, dealing with uh, the kind of health problems that uh, confront people, especially uh, in developing nations, but also across the United States. And then uh, the evaluation of the project. Uh, the project is put into place and begins working. And then after a year or so, you want to do an evaluation of the project to make sure, again, that the goals are being met and that the people that are being targeted are genuinely being helped and no kind of unexpected um, consequences that may be negative are, uh, are occurring. Um, again, the ethics, uh, when, um, when physical anthropologists and archaeologists work with skeletal and even fossil materials, the ethical considerations can become quite complex. You know, for example, some skeletal collections uh, were, take, were, were illegally um, obtained or obtained under kind of biased circumstances. And so uh, the goal here is to make sure that um, the, the people who are being studied, uh, their relatives uh, have some say in the research, whether the research should go on. And what we have is, is a law enacted in the United States, uh, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation uh, Act, which essentially um, alerts Native communities. Uh, if, for example, an archaeologist would find um, a number of different things. One is uh, skeletal remains from a burial or grave goods um, associated with a skeleton or items of cultural patrimony. Items of cultural patrimony are essentially those items that are sacred to the people uh, being investigated. And so uh, the goal of, of NAGPRA, and the history is, is pretty complex, uh, I will say that uh, uh, the state of Nebraska established a law prior to NAGPRA that uh, became a model that was used by NAGPRA at the, uh, at the federal level. And so we have much to be proud um, of uh, in terms of what was done uh, at UNL and, and the uh, state of Nebraska through the unicameral and assuring uh, that uh, these, these, these unmarked graves uh, were treated with uh, dignity uh, with all the ethical uh, considerations. Uh, evaluating effects of plan change, um, even if uh, plan change will benefit its target population, people might not accept it. That is, it may be very difficult uh, to uh, um, um, convince the people uh, that um, what they're doing is in their best uh, interest. Um, you know, for example, if you look at vaccination campaigns, uh, some information was spread saying that the vaccinations were uh, this is, for example, in India and Pakistan, were designed to either infect the people or to uh, prevent them from being uh, pregnant. And so uh, you have to understand that these changes operate in a political and social uh, environment. Uh, and so uh, you may find the target population is not really upsetting, uh, accepting of this. And also, a lot of times, the target population is really not consulted. Uh, and they should be consulted if you're going to have uh, an effective uh, kind of um, health campaign such as a vaccination campaign or a campaign to uh, give people uh, clean uh, drinking water, uh, things of that nature, all under the um, uh, kind of auspices of development anthropology. Um, again, target populations may reject or resist proposed innovation because they're unaware of the need for change. Uh, they don't understand, you know, the nature of um, a disease uh, uh, transmission, let's say through cholera, and uh, the importance of a, a clean water supply. Some of the customs may uh, conflict with change, especially kind of younger, older, 
uh, dynamics and the power relationships. A lot of times when change is instituted, um, uh, young people are the ones kind of at the head uh, of instituting the change uh, because they're more educated than the older population. And it's not so much that the older population is necessarily against it, but they see their kind of rights as power brokers being um, uh, broken up by this um, uh, change. And, uh, you know, some of the change has to do with uh, loss of identity. Uh, and take a look at the, um, on page uh, 375 on female farmers in Malawi, uh, the assumption that a lot of people in USAID made um, when they're instituting agricultural change uh, was that the men were farmers. In fact, uh, women are the farmers uh, in many places across uh, Africa and I'd say in the majority of of, uh, of, of places, and so uh, the the aim was a bit crooked in that it focused on uh, males as being head of households and running the farms, and in fact, females uh, did it. So that, uh, that that little insight there on page 375 is useful to read. Um, some more of the difficulties in instituting plan change, overcoming resistance, uh, discovering and utilizing local channels of influence. This is very important. For example, if you want to do some kind of cropping changes, you focus on what we call model farmers. And these farmers who are highly regarded uh, in the community uh, as being uh, experts, these men and women, uh, then uh, in, you try to induce them to um, initiate the change. Uh, they're, they're smart and able. The change in terms of, let's say, a new kind of uh, seed is successful, and then it can trickle down to the rest of the population. Uh, and also, again, the need for uh, collaboration is really important uh, in, in applied anthropology in that uh, the people who are going to be the subjects or objects of change, you know, need to get on board. Uh, you need to kind of take their advice. Uh, they may give you some hidden insights in terms of what are effective ways of instituting uh, change, whatever kind of change that you might want to uh, institute. Um, Applied anthropologists are increasingly asked to work on behalf of indigenous uh, grassroots uh, organizations. And that is um, a lot of uh, indigenous peoples are getting politically uh, organized. Uh, therefore, they have a voice in um, government planning and oftentimes uh, with their own funds or sometimes uh, fun, uh, uh, in other means, they, they essentially bring anthropologists into uh, a project to evaluate it, to look at the kind of policy policy that's being formulated by uh, a government for, for change. Uh, and uh, so we uh, work essentially alongside the people that previously uh, we've studied, uh, but now uh, we're um, working hand in hand with them to make sure that any uh, type of plan change will essentially benefit them in terms of increasing uh, their chances of survival, reproduction, uh, quality of life, uh, health, uh, income, and all those things are really important. Um, here's an example of, uh, you know, on page 378, uh, a group of Native South Americans uh, protest against uh, the construction of a dam uh, and uh, simply a demand that, you know, if they're going to be displaced by the dam or affected by the dam, uh, wanting to have prior consultations with the uh, government uh, to uh, fully understand and appreciate how their lands are going to be affected. Will they be able to fish anymore? Will they lose some river edge uh, rich land that will be uh, flooded that they normally crop? Uh, these sorts of things will be, um, you know, are really important. And again, uh, anthropologists assist in this uh, process 
uh, by doing prior studies and, and uh, uh, beginning to collaborate with these native peoples. Um, environmental anthropology um, focuses on the interaction of humans with the environment, particularly focusing on how to understand and alleviate the degradation of the environment. As populations grow, uh, then the need for conservation becomes uh, really um, more and more important uh, because while um, the population can grow and use the environment uh, over the long term, uh, the environment will be degraded. And um, uh, there's a section in the book that talks about um, uh, timber use among the, the Maasai uh, and government-owned land versus Maasai-owned land. And again, uh, this is a task for, in this case, applied anthropology in the area of environmental anthropology. Um, so, importantly, uh, when an environmental anthropologist um, begins his or her work, they want to know how people interact with the environment and their, review, their view of the environment. Uh, also to understand what we call traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK. This is really important because um, these indigenous peoples have been living on the land for a long period of time, uh, and they've been uh, engaged in a variety of extractive activities, whether it's hunting, gathering, fishing, foraging, agriculture, etc., etc. Uh, and they have an uh, understanding of resource depletion uh, and the kind of biotic interrelationships um, that, that affect the whole ecological system. And so understanding their traditional, traditional ecological knowledge is really important. And again, as I mentioned before, example of conservation ownership issues in Kenya in relation to timber ownership was one of the uh, examples given in the text, so take a look at it. Uh, and uh, also one of the things they want to do is, is, again, study the social impact from plan change. Uh, if you are going to, you know, for example, open up uh, government land uh, for timber use, uh, who's going to benefit? Uh, will the community be able to benefit or will interlopers uh, who maybe have um, a better equipment uh, rush into the area and, uh, and destroy the resources that are essentially designed for uh, native peoples to use? These are just some of the complexities and a lot of these things are uh, unexpected when you, you're developing social policy. Uh, you need to really cover the bases to make sure that uh, what you're uh, allowing is very narrow and specific and, and well tailored for the people who are likely to be affected. Uh, business and organizational anthropology um, looks at the larger culture in which organizations are situated, the culture and subcultures of the organization and the perspectives of different groups. Uh, and on, again on page 361, a number of anthropologists work for General Motors uh, on their culture and found that there's more competition than cooperation between different units, uh, even though uh, there was this kind of uh, stated uh, position that, you know, we're all cooperative and working together for the betterment of General Motors. Um, you find out there's a lot of infighting going on, uh, and anthropologists um, try to look at this one dimension of, uh, of the culture and kind of change it so that uh, the um, company overall uh, is uh, more profitable. Uh, more effective, and the people who are working there are essentially more satisfied with their with their roles. Um, <clears throat> cultural resource management. Uh, this is a kind of actually archaeology, CRM, uh, recovering and preserving the archaeological record before programs of plan change disturb or destroy it. Um, that's what CRM is all about. For example, uh, if you look at the Nebraska State Historic Society, they have a highway commission. And anytime a new road is put in, new bridges put in, 
Uh, there has to be an examination to see if there are any uh, important archaeological remains that should be uh, preserved. Most of the time, um, <clears throat> there aren't any, but when there uh, are some, uh, then uh, they, they try to figure out how important, how rich the site is, and whether it should be excavated and preserved uh, before um, the uh, road work begins. And much of the funding uh, for CRM, about $1 billion a year uh, as of 2017, uh, comes from the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, which is a federal uh, entity uh, that essentially helps fund the CRM work at the state and local level. And again, the Nebraska State Historic Society uh, is a place where this is, uh, is done. Also in town here is the Midwest Archaeological Center, which is a federal agency that is, um, deals with CRM issues uh, for a seven-state uh, region, uh, all housed here in Anthology, and we have, excuse me, in Lincoln. And we have very good uh, relationships, a lot of our um, Graduate students, some of our undergraduate students are trained over there uh, through internships and actually um, jobs uh, to kind of uh, get into this kind of uh, kind of work. Here's an example um, from the book on page uh, 382. Commuters looking at the fourth century uh, ruins uncovered as part of a larger scale CRM project associated with the construction of uh, the Athens metro system. So the point here too is that CRM work occurs all over the world, just not in the United States, even though I gave you uh, United States examples with the um, Nebraska State uh, Historic Society, the Archaeological Division. Uh, but people are interested in the past. They want the past to be preserved. They want it to uh, uh, it'd be handed down to their, their children and here they, they kind of stuck this museum-like display uh, in the uh, subway system because it ran through an area that uh, had archaeological remains. They excavated those remains and put them in a, uh, a subway display. Uh, and again, that makes us turn to museum anthropology. Uh, anthropologists typically hold one of the three positions in muse museums. Either the curators are responsible for the overall content and use of collections. And you know these collections uh, are housed in the museum, for example, in Morrill Hall, uh, and um, those collections are there for other people to examine if they want to know a bit about Nebraska prehistory. Uh, collection management serves that museum collections are preserved, and again, uh, the collection managers are the people who um, uh, you know do the nitty-gritty uh, job of uh, intaking um, uh, collections, making sure that they're well preserved. They're accurately described and things of that nature. And the museum educators teach the public about the peoples and cultures represented in the museum's collections. For example, um, if you look at the Nebraska State Museum, about 2% uh, of all their collections, whether they're animals, minerals, or, or archaeological materials, are displayed at any one time. About 98% uh, of those things that are held by the museum are actually in the collections. Uh, and then people can go into the uh, the basements and attics that we have uh, where, where these collections are holds, housed so they can look at the material so they can do uh, research. <clears throat> Forensic anthropology is a really interesting field. Uh, is especially in, in anthropology that is devoted to solving crimes and how they occur. As I mentioned earlier, uh, anytime a uh, body is discovered, uh, by the uh, state or local uh, police that they come to us. Uh, the state crime lab uh, doesn't have the kind of expertise that we have in the area of what we call skeletal biology to try and identify the, um, the sex, the age, and maybe the ethnicity 
of, of, a, of a skeleton they found that may be 100 years old, 200, 300, 400 years old, Native American, is it the pioneer or is it uh, a recent burial of someone who um, just happened to, uh, to die and um, wasn't discovered until uh, it was uncovered. And so uh, it, it's very much interested in, in, in crime enforcement. Um, also, you can click on this link here, the story of Dozer's, Dozer's Boys Home featuring Erin Kimberly. She was one of my former students. Uh, she works uh, in the um, Florida State uh, University uh, system. And essentially, it was a uh, cemetery and a boys' home. Uh, the boys were treated really harshly. This boys' home were essentially for uh, boys who lost their parents. They were abandoned. They were put in this really kind of horrible place. And then uh, when they died, they were just kind of buried secretly uh, outside, as you read in the in the article. And uh, her goal, Erin's uh, goal, was to essentially identify these kids uh, and to let their nearest relatives know um, what became of them and, and how they would uh, like to, um, you know, given they have remains, perhaps they want to put them in a, a family burial plot, things of that nature. And so, and Erin and other of my students have also uh, worked um, uh, all over the world uh, looking at uh, massacres um, uh, in, in Iraq, uh, in Vukovar, uh, in, in Serbia, and, and other places. And their specialization had to be on the identification of, of uh, war crimes. And again, the idea is to um, uh, excavate the bodies, identify them, and then let their closest kin know um, where they uh, where they are and what became of them to kind of give them some kind of closure um, for this sort of sad uh, state of affairs. Um, and here's you know an example of of, of um, uh, a skeleton being excavated at a massacre site uh, in in Argentina that occurred. Um, uh, between 1976 and 1983, the desaparecidos, the disappeared ones in, in Argentina that were essentially uh, killed by um, a dictatorial military kind of uh, government organization uh, during that uh, period when it ruled uh, Argentina. And again, uh, an attempt to you know document the extent, uh, perhaps establish uh, who are the guilty parties, uh, but most of all to kind of give some kind of closure to the um, uh, closest kin. Uh, some terms and concepts that are pretty straightforward. You should know all the different forms of applied anthropology, forensic, CRM, uh, um, etc., etc. So the ethical considerations, uh, no harm in honest and open uh, reporting. That is, uh, when you do uh, this kind of research, you want to make sure that you are not harming uh, the population that you're um, working with. Uh, the, some of the difficulties in working uh, for change is illustrated in the book and also Again, NAGPRA, which specifically applies to essentially um, uh, archaeological kind of research and has to do with the ethical treatment of, um, of, of, of human remains of unknown uh, provenance. So, you know, understand those kind of basic uh, areas that which applied anthropology covers.